This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, July 27th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Representative Andy Biggs says vaccine mandates are a direct violation of Americans' personal freedoms. But groups like the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association, almost 60 organizations in total, are pushing for mandated vaccines. Are vaccine mandates a further encroachment of Americans' personal freedoms? Representative Biggs joins me today on the Daily Signal podcast to discuss. Today's interview was recorded at the Turning Point USA Student Action Summit. So please excuse any background music and noise. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on today's top news. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has appointed Representative Adam Kinzinger to serve on the special committee investigating the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. Kinzinger, an Illinois Republican, is a critic of former President Donald Trump. He joins Representative Liz Cheney, a Wyoming Republican, as the second GOP member to serve on the Democratic-led committee. Both Cheney and Kinzinger voted to impeach Trump. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was quick to criticize Pelosi's appointment of Kinzinger, writing in a statement that Pelosi's self-appointment of members who share her preconceived narrative will not yield a serious investigation. McCarthy, a California Republican, added, The Speaker has structured this select committee to satisfy her political objectives. She had months to work with Republicans on a reasonable and fair approach to get answers on the events and security failures surrounding January 6th. Instead, she has played politics. The committee's first hearing is set to take place today, July 27th, and Cheney is scheduled to give the opening remarks. Nearly 60 organizations, including the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association, are demanding that healthcare workers get the coronavirus vaccine, pointing to the spreading Delta variant of COVID-19. In a joint statement, the organization said, Due to the recent COVID-19 surge and the availability of safe and effective vaccines, our healthcare organizations and societies advocate that all healthcare and long-term care employees require their workers to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. This is the logical fulfillment of the ethical commitment of all healthcare workers to put patients as well as residents of long-term care facilities first and take all steps necessary to ensure their health and well-being. On Monday, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, a Democrat, announced that city workers must be vaccinated or get weekly COVID-19 tests. The Dixie Fire in Northern California is just over 20 percent contained and continues to spread after merging with the smaller Fly Fire. Over the weekend and into Monday, the Dixie Fire burned in the counties of Butte and Plumas, about 160 miles north of Sacramento. The Dixie Fire has been burning for nearly two weeks and has destroyed 16 structures. Firefighters say over 10,000 structures are still at risk. The wildfire is just one of over 80 fires burning across 11 western states. More than 8,000 Americans have been forced to evacuate from their homes because of the fires. The Senate's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill remains in gridlock over concerns on both sides of the aisle. A Democratic source close to the talk said on Monday morning that Democratic negotiators and the White House had made a global offer to Republicans on Sunday night that would have addressed a number of unresolved issues. Republicans, however, reportedly rejected the offer. 
The Hill also reported that the transportation chunk of the bill, at a cost of $312 trillion, was the area of biggest disagreement, along with funding for broadband, highways and bridges, as well as putting unused COVID-19 relief funds toward paying for the infrastructure package. In addition, Republicans want to remove mandated wage requirements for federally funded projects, per The Hill. Now stay tuned for my conversation on vaccine mandates with Congressman Andy Biggs. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear lectures from some of the biggest names in American politics? The Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. These events are free and open to the public. To find the latest Heritage events and to register, visit heritage.org slash events. I'm joined on The Daily Signal by Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona. Congressman Biggs, welcome back again to The Daily Signal podcast. Richard, good to be with you as always. It's great to have you with us. So I want to start off by talking about the vaccine mandate and the door-to-door announcement that we had come out of the Biden administration. Uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary, had said a couple, very recently, about a week or two ago, that there's going to be targeted community-by-community door-to-door outreach, checking on whether people have been vaccinated or not. What's your perspective on this announcement? Well, it's, it's what a tyranny would do. It's what an authoritarian government would do. Uh, and when she said it was targeted neighborhoods and Joe Biden, President Biden implied it was targeted, it made me think maybe they have a database, right? So if they've got a database, where are they getting that information? How is that information coming to them? Are they violating HIPAA laws? What is going on with it? I actually wrote a letter to the president asking him these things, which we've heard nothing back on. But I view it as a tremendous violation of uh, our rights to privacy. Um, what? Think about it. What what place do you think that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy? Even the Supreme Court says in your home. The second thing is, what do you have a reasonable expectation of privacy about? What do most people keep hidden from the rest of the world? Their money and their health. And they want to basically invade your privacy. And that's what a tyrant would do. On that note, and you mentioned the violation of HIPAA rights, but how is this basically a further encroachment of Americans' personal freedoms? Well, be, because of what they also said, that they're going to try to re-educate individuals who've made a decision. So what, what, the, what it means is they want to get authority and control of you by controlling your health decision. See, you, you follow that? If they're trying to get a hold of you and find out whether you've done what they want you to do, guess what? They are trying to control you. And that is expanding everywhere in this society. And that's the problem. So what does this door-to-door announcement from the Biden administration say in general about the state of personal freedoms and where down the road this could go, potentially? Well, I mean... It can go, there, there's almost no limit. I mean, you've, we're already on the edge of that now with some of the other things they're doing uh, and their partnership with big business, big banks to find out what people's ideas are, maybe uh, encourage them to take action. Well, it, it, so you take the, that and you couple it with the fact that they also announced that they're going to work with social media like Facebook to take down things that they believe are not true. And they say, well, we can't take them down. They said they're going to encourage them to take them down. 
guess what? There is a move to regulate Facebook. Well, what do you think Facebook's going to do if the party in power says, we want you not to do this, or we want you to take these types of things down? We want you to change your algorithm. They're going to respond. That's called fascism. That is what fascism does. It's this unholy alliance between uh, big government and big business. And so uh, it should alarm and alert every American that this regime, which is now a regime, it's not an administration, it is a regime of totalitarians, needs to be stopped. Point blank, should Americans be forced to take a vaccine? No, absolutely not. I've talked about this with friends, and something that I have mentioned is say, looking at where well, we all had our measles, monster, bella, we all had our vaccinations, but we never had to go to our school or go to an airport and prove that to anyone. It was no one's business. So why why is this something we're talking about now? Well, again, it's, it's what I it's I, I sound like a one-note piano. It's control. They they want absolute control over you. I mean, think back about it. Uh, it was it was lockdown, so they didn't care what happened to the economy. They said it was uh, a, a, an inconvenience. That's what Fauci described it as. They didn't they didn't care about the mental health problems that came with lockdowns or this mask. Think about masks. You're not wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a mask. Uh, no one at this this event is wearing masks. But I got to wear a mask on the plane, even though we've reached herd immunity, according to many scientists. And if you have a vaccine, you're supposed that's what a vaccine does. It's supposed to immunize you against against uh, other health, other people who might be carriers ostensibly. If so, you shouldn't be afraid of me if you've had the vaccine. Right. That's if I don't have the vaccine. And second thing is I, adults get to make choices on risk all the time. We do on whether we're going to eat something a certain way or whether we're going to how we're going to drive uh, places we're going to go. Uh, I mean, we, we're adults. That's what freedom's about is making choices and being held accountable for those choices, not by the government, but by the natural consequences of those choices. I want to talk to you about the situation at the border as well. You come from a border state. We talk about this a lot. We've been to the border a bunch of times together. Uh, Customs and Border Patrol waited until about mid-July to release the June numbers, and those numbers, I believe, are the highest for this time of year in 20 years. What's your perspective, number one, on that late release of those numbers, and then number two, just where we're at right now with the, I think it's about 190,000 crossings? perspective well it's it's getting worse I mean so so every month has been uh, since February has been a new record for both for that month but also for overall and um, and that's because there's been no policy change since late January when the Biden administration cut out all the policies that were working on the border but the second thing is uh, I would uh, you, so you want to know why they did that well the why they did that is because uh, the, it's it's too bad. They they're trying to bury it along with other news. They were trying to look for the middle of the summer when everybody's on vacation. They don't you know try to bury it as much as they possibly can. But here's the other thing about that. There's this whole there's a whole lot we could talk about, Rachel, because you've been with me at the border. You know this. They have talked about this week uh, being the week that they're going to uh, eliminate Title 42. Now Title 42 for people who don't know what that is. That allows the Border Patrol to deny entry based on health emergencies like COVID. And uh, the, the people coming across, they've got COVID. And CBP is not testing them. 
they turn them over to the to the charitable organizations called NGOs, a type of NGO, and those NGOs are testing people then. And if you don't have COVID, if you don't respond to rapid test, they will release you somewhere in the country. If you do have COVID, they're going to put you up in an area hotel and not make sure that you're there for this quarantine period. People can leave that hotel anytime they want. It would be absolutely the the final uh, gas on the fire to get rid of Title 42. It will. Uh, I was talking to experts last week. They told me that all of the southern border will look like McAllen, which is getting about 2,500 to 3,500 a day if Title 42 goes away. And the Biden administration wants it to go away badly. Well, before we got started, you were telling me about your most recent trip to the border and a situation with a young child, a young girl, uh, crossing over, wanting to find her mom. So many people who watch mainstream media don't know these stories. Can you tell us about what you saw and especially that encounter with that little girl? Yes, yeah, so I was I was meeting with an agent and he 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 uh, actually shared a series of photos of small children um, under the age of seven, and that's a Biden policy issue that that would uh, take a few minutes to explain. But let's just say this seven-year-old girl that in, in question, she was there. He he asked her, "Where where where are you from?" She's from Central America. Where where are you going in the United States? She said, "I'm going. I want to go to Detroit." Why do you want to go to Detroit? Well, my mom's in Detroit. Now think about that. What happened is mom hands that child off to the coyotes. These are inhumane people. You've seen, we've all seen videos of them dropping kids over the, the fences. Most people don't know that um, they'll throw them into the Rio Grande River if we try to stop that raft from coming across the river. They will, they will do that to turn it into a rescue instead of an interdiction. If you and, and so what they did is they they reunite that child with the mom in Detroit. They call her up because the child has it written on the inside of her pants. Call her up. Yes, that's my child. She's illegally in the country. The mom is and the, and the child is. If you and I did that to our child, the child would be taken away from us and we would be charged with crimes against that child. What we do, what this administration is doing, we're reuniting. We're reuniting that kid with, with, with a mom who basically put her in with some wicked, inhumane human traffickers. And we say, that's fine and well. That's the outrage of what's happening on the border. And that happens over and over. He showed me a series of pictures uh, of just taken in the last few weeks. I saw a bunch of unaccompanied children. And when I say a bunch, we were out there for an hour that evening, um, over 150 uh, individuals crossed the river that, at that time. So we're about seven months in, I believe, to Biden administration. What is the morale of the Border Patrol right now? It's about as low as I've ever seen it. It's, they're very, they feel like they're uh, getting kicked in the, in the tail end every day. Uh, they're, de- they're doing a mission that's not theirs. Their mission is to secure the border. That's what it's always been. And they're told that they can't secure the border. Um, half or more than half are, are basically taking care of the Southern Donna facility, which is packed still. And they're, they're doing that kind of duty. They're doing processing and paperwork. You have a, the, the temporary 
um, facility in, uh, in McAllen, literally thousands of people every day. And that's what these agents are doing. So instead of returning the people and securing the country's border, they are actually providing, as, as one of them told me, we're the logistics, we're delivering these people all over the country. The cartel brings them to the river, gets them across the river, we then take them and we put them wherever they want. It's a, the morale's very low. We talked about the increase of numbers, of the June numbers that just got released in July. Uh, should Congress hold a hearing on what's happening? I know you've mentioned something, I believe, similar on Twitter. What do you think should happen to address the crisis? Well, we should, we should be um, holding hearings, but the Democrats control, so we're not gonna get those hearings, as you know. I can give you, I'll give you a few things right now that would operationally bring this under control within about two to three weeks. Number one, Joe Biden has to stand up and say, stop coming, we're not going to let you in. Kind of like what Mallorcas told the Cubans and Haitians who are fleeing a tyrannical government. That's what you would say. And the second thing you would do is you would re, you'd make sure that Title 42, all of it, not the changes they've made, but all 42 is in place. You'd reinstitute Romania Mexico policy. You'd reinstitute the asylum and international agreements with the Northern Triangle states of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. You would stop giving $1,400 to illegal aliens based on the CARE uh, uh, Act. You would finish building the fence. You would move your immigration judges to the border and to deal with the, with the asylum claims and the claims, other claims immediately and forget about your backlog because you have an emergency on your border. And if you did those things right there, um, this, this thing would slow down very quickly. When we were at the border, and I know you've taken other lawmakers there, there's an elementary school that gets locked down, Palminas Elementary School, I believe, in Cochise County, because of all the cartel violence that happens and the drug loads that are picked up and dropped off right across the street from the school, maybe even sometimes on school property, essentially. What are some other practical ways where local people see the impact of what's going on right now in border areas? Well, first of all, um, if you're a rancher or a farmer, you're going to have uh, damage done to your, your ranch and farm. I mean, I was talking to a farmer on this recent trip. He says, well, we haven't seen, you know, we, we don't get much damage. They cut fences and stuff like that. Okay. So, but they have to repair those fences. In other places, if you've got livestock, they'll lose, they'll lose livestock, the fences down. We've had water uh, taken. We've had um, uh, burglaries. We've had violence committed uh, in Arizona in various places against people close to the border. Now that's that. The, uh, we've had um, one community where, where these people were just released in the community and there's no services whatsoever. Um, and they didn't even, it was such a small community, they didn't have vehicles to transport these people to Phoenix to try to get services. And, um, and these, these, these communities budget so much to take care of community services and needs. And then you've got some non-government organizations that participate. And right now, all of them are at capacity and can't fully deliver all those services. So you have that going on. You have the release of violent criminals in some places. In, uh, in the Rio Grande Valley, for instance, the number of stash houses, I want to say, was got to be close to 200 that they have found this year. And, that's, and, uh, and don't forget the other inhumanity. Uh, Rachel, we can just talk about this forever. I'm sorry. But, 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 but I mean, you, look, you have uh, uh, trucks that, that are just filled with people. And that there's 
there's not enough air, there's not enough space. They're in these trucks. You've got suburbans over in the, uh, in the Southern California, in the Mexicali area, coming north del Centro, where they've taken all the seats out of the suburban except for the driver's seat, and they throw 25 people in there. And we've seen those vehicles get in accidents, either with other vehicles, and most of those people are killed, um, or else you have roller over accidents. So you have just a myriad ways that this is impacting uh, the border states, but the drug, the, we haven't even talked about the drugs, but that's impacting the entire country. Over 90, I think it's 93,000 uh, uh, overdose deaths this year. And uh, that's, I, think that's, I think it's twice as high as any number in the past. And part of that is because opioids are flooding. Uh, across the board. And we all know people, tragically, who have overdosed on opioids, so it's, it's something that continue to deal with. You're exactly right. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you about your legislation. I believe you have to remove the mask mandate on transportation. Yeah. Tell us about that. So um, it's it's really simple. Um, it says uh, you can't mandate masks on, on uh, any kind of federal trans any kind of public transportation. So right now on planes, so we're here at this. And there are conferences all over the place, in free places, not like L.A. again, where, as the sheriff, the uh, only thing I've ever agreed with that sheriff in L.A. County said is <laughs> that violates CDC and is against the science put out by CDC. And so uh, I sit on a plane, and planes have some of the best uh, ventilation systems in the world. I mean, they do. And they're, they're, I've, talked to the, I've talked to them about that. And, and we're sitting there side by side, and, and we people have vaccinated, we've reached herd immunity, it's ludicrous, and uh, it's another uh, avenue, comes back to where you and I started just minutes ago, control. It's all about control. Well, Congressman Biggs, thank you for being with us yet again on the Daily Signal podcast. You're a veteran. It's always good to have you with us. Thanks, Rachel. Good to see you again. Don't go away. Up next, we are bringing you a bonus interview. Doug Blair talks with Joe Mitchell, president and founder of a youth-based political advocacy group dedicated to recruiting young conservatives to run for office. They talk about how conservatives can better connect with young people, as well as how the conservative movement is doing among Gen Zers. The Heritage Foundation has a new website to combat critical race theory. CRT, as it's known, makes race the centerpiece of all aspects of American life. It categorizes individuals into groups of oppressors and victims. The idea is infiltrating everything from our politics and education to the workplace and even our military. Heritage has pulled together the resources that you need to identify CRT in your community and the ways to fight it. We also have a legislation tracker so you can see what's happening in your state. Visit heritage.org slash CRT to learn more. My guest today here on the Daily Signal podcast is Joe Mitchell, one of the founders of Run Gen Z, a youth-based political advocacy organization. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Doug, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So for our listeners at home, would you be able to tell me a little bit more about your organization, what it's about, what you guys are trying to accomplish? Of course. So I'll, I'll start with giving you a background about myself and that transitions to why I started you know, this organization. So I'm a state representative from Iowa. I got elected at the age of 21. I'm 24 now, sort of my second term uh, in the Iowa House. And so, you know, I had announced my candidacy when I was 20. Um, and actually, I just talked on stage about this, how my predecessor of 24 years, who had, you know, 
very much respect and a good friend of mine now, told me in the beginning that, Joe, uh, you're too young, you have your whole life ahead of you, you don't have enough life experience to run for office yet. And so obviously, uh, I get one against his better judgment, and I decided to still run in the primary, and the party had picked somebody out to run, and, uh, but I said, I'm not gonna lose without dignity. And so I knocked on thousands of doors across my district, made hundreds of phone calls across my district, and I won my primary by 100 votes. And so I won my primary, went into the general, I'm in a pretty conservative district, so I won my general by 20 points. Wow. And then, but shortly after I got um, sworn into office, I realized there's not a ton of young conservatives out there, right, in, in the state or, state or local government. Definitely not the federal government. You know, obviously we have Madison Cawthorn, um, you know, in Congress, but uh, he's only, you know, generations in person there, right? So, you know, what I started thinking about was how can we recruit more young conservatives to run for city council, school boards, county supervisor uh, positions, um, state legislative positions. And so that's when I came up with this idea of Run Gen Z. So obviously it stands for Run Generation Z. And I said the mission of it is to empower, recruit, and uh, mentor the next generation of conservative leaders across America. But I knew I needed a, a diverse coalition of young conservatives if I was going to be able to do this. And so what I did is I contacted uh, Caleb Hanna from West Virginia that you guys interviewed before, yep. I think, uh, Joe Alexander from uh, New Hampshire, and then Amber Mariano and Josie Tomkow from Florida. And so I pretty much cold called all of them and said, hey, you don't know me. I'm a state representative, though. Um, I'm also conservative. I'm you know, under 25. And I said, let's start this group that helps uh, recruit more young people to run for office. And we'll help them find a seat that's viable, that they should run for, that they can be successful at. As I said, I've seen too many young people that they'll get in these races and primary good conservatives. And it's like, you're wasting your talent when you could be actually running for something that we need school board members. We need city council members. You know what I mean? You also have to go, you always have to go for the big apple, right? And so that's what we've been able to create. Now we have over 25 elected officials in this coalition. We've had hundreds of applicants um, from you know candidates all around the country, young people um, that are interested in running for, for these offices and making a difference in their community. And so we've been extremely blessed over the last six months with all the growth we've had. Uh, Charlie Kirk's been a good friend of ours, gave us some seed money actually to start this organization. Charlie's seen the vision um, from the beginning. So uh, just blessed to be here and we've had wonderful success so far. That's, I mean, that's so fantastic to see that you've had some of these successes. I'm curious, we, we often hear that we need to get more youth engagement into politics. Do you find that getting people into these school boards and getting yeah. people into the sort of local elections has been helpful in getting the movement to be bolstered or? Yeah, because I think you're, you're, you're building a farm team essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And we hear so much. I mean, even in my local community, it's so hard to get you know people in general to run for these offices. And young people are hungry, right? And we care, especially at these conferences, like Turning Point conferences, these young people care about the future of the country. And so that was my message on stage was, you know, you can go home after this and post a Facebook post or a Twitter post or whatever on social media, but that doesn't help squat. Right. But what does is if you actually run for something, um, you know, whether that be a school board or city council, it starts on the local level. These mass mandates we had were on the local level, right? Um, you know, the critical race theory, the sexual education to our kindergartners, that's on the local level. That's our school board. That's not coming from the federal level. And so if you actually really want to, want to make a real impact and a real difference, you had to start on the local level with these with these elections that we've uh, disregarded for, for far too long. Sure. And I think that's totally fantastic to see that you we've recognized that there is this problem, that these local elections have been sort of ignored for a little bit now that we're putting effort into it. Would you be able to point to some of your, what would you feel your greatest successes are as an organization so far? Yeah. So we've actually 
already elected multiple different folks across the country. We've elected three young Hispanic guys down in Texas to various different city councils down there. Uh, we, we actually elected the youngest now sitting elected official in Texas um, is sitting on a city council down there, Roman Garcia. And uh, we've elected people out in Idaho and New Hampshire, and we're uh, focused on races for this fall as well. So we've already had success with um, successful elections that uh, we'd be able to win because of this model, because of this mentorship model where we pair up these young candidates with our already elected official. It's their age that can kind of have this intimate relationship with them to talk about the real issues um, and, the, and the stupid questions that people wanna, don't want to ask, right? They feel comfortable right. uh, asking these questions about door knocking, about fundraising, about um, you know, comm strategy and all those kinds of things. Excellent. No, I, I think that's a wonderful model to have where you're pairing these people up with the, with the, um, the sort of more experienced mm. people in the movement. I'm curious, do you find that there's any issues that young voters are more like attracted to or they tend to, to resonate more with? Well, so that's what's been interesting. We've had a diverse, um, you know, when, when we have our job, it's pretty much a job application on our website that you fill out if you want to run for office with us. And so the variety of issues that young people care about, um, from pro-life issues to critical race theory uh, to property taxes, just varies. Um, so we haven't had, um, you know, one single issue that most folks have been, been focused on. It's a wide variety of things, but that's what the beauty of it is, though, is then we can, we can use those issues they care about, and then we can say, you'd be a great fit for school board. You'd be a great fit for a county supervisor, you know what I mean? Right. And, and figure out those things from there. So it's been a, a wide variety of issues, and, um, and it, it's really honestly encouraging to see how many of these young people actually care about these, these deep embedded issues that like, need to be fixed in these communities on the local level. Absolutely. Now, I have a question for you in terms of sort of the, the mentality of the, the younger generation yeah. here. When I imagine sort of the younger generation, I imagine the Twitter generation, the social media generation, yeah. and they tend to be a little bit more overwhelmingly left. You imagine these people on college campuses who are, who are kind of left wing. How, what would you say is the pulse of the conservative movement in the youth, in, in the youth generation? Yeah. So, you know, another reason why I started Run Gen Z is I, I've seen that our generation has become increasingly more socialist, self-identified socialist. Right. They're not even Democrat anymore. And so what I've realized is that you have to have young conservatives that are able to communicate with their generation if you want to save the country, right? Right. Um, because, you know, somebody that's, you know, a, a you know, 70-year-old white guy um, that's an elected official isn't right. going to be able to, you know, relate as much with, you know, these 20-year-olds uh, that are trying to figure out whether they are where they are politically and where we should be at in this country. And so I truly believe by electing young, vibrant, conservative voices, they will be able to communicate to their to their generation um, much much better than than the older generation, obviously. Right. So you're saying that you know having somebody in that position to yeah. point to as an example of, hey, this is a person who is a young conservative. Mm -hmm. They are openly conservative about yeah. their values. You can be too. Yeah. Well, I think the other important part about this is too is is, is my my co-founders that I have, right? right? So we have uh, Josie Tomcow, Amber Mariano here from Florida, obviously women. Um, in the state legislature. And then we have, you know, Caleb Hanna, who's the youngest African-American ever elected to a state office in American history. Sure. Like, that's incredible. Like, he got elected at 18, uh, which is incredible. And then we have Joe Alexander from New Hampshire, who's an openly gay Republican. So we, we've formed this, this diverse coalition of leaders for this organization to right. say, 
that that's that's the new conservative movement. You know what I mean? And we're going to come together with these coalitions to stand up for America, for limited government, for capitalism, for free markets, um, and really take a stand to the left. And yeah, no, I think that that's fantastic that you have an actual diverse coalition as opposed yeah. to just sort of you know people that look different. So we are running a little bit low on time, but yeah. I like to give my guest the last word. So if yeah. our listeners were to take one thing from this interview, that one kernel of truth, mm. what would you want them to take from this interview and why? Well, Doug, I just appreciate you guys having me on, but I would say please visit our website at rungenz.com. Follow our social media handles. Our Instagram is uh, at run.genz. Um, Twitter's at rungenz. Facebook's at rungenz. And please get involved. Please apply. If you're under 30, we're working with folks under 30. So if you're under 30, please apply online. Uh, if you want to make a real difference in your community, you have to do this. You can't just you know sit on the sidelines anymore and post social media posts. Excellent. Joe, well, thank you so much. That was Joe Mitchell, one of the founders of Run Gen Z, a youth-based political advocacy organization. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Doug. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.